Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. I'm Stacey Whitney, and I'm joined today by Scott Modell. Hey, Scott. Hey, Stace. So on today's episode, Scott and I are going to be talking about cerebral palsy. We get a lot of questions during trainings about uh, doing interviews with people with cerebral palsy, so we thought it would be helpful to our listeners if we spent a little time focusing on these interviews. So, Scott, the first thing I think we should do is talk a little bit about what cerebral palsy is and how it can affect people in different ways at different ages. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, Happy to do so. So, you know, one of the interesting things about cerebral palsy is that people misunderstand it quite a bit. It falls under the broader sort of definition of developmental disability, which is not necessarily for our world a useful term. It's certainly useful in terms of qualifying for services and so forth in various states and under federal definitions. It's a little bit of a misnomer sometimes or can be misleading because we now have individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, or IDD. So we sort of put the I and the DD together. And it can give this sort of impression or this um, synonymous nature of DD and ID. So that if somebody has a DD or their DD, people sometimes use it as a surrogate for intellectual disability. That's not really helpful for individuals with cerebral palsy. So I'll talk a little bit about cerebral palsy and um, what it is what it's not, and then we'll get into some susceptibilities to victimization, and then we'll talk about some communication interviewing uh, strategies. So cerebral palsy essentially is essentially damage to the immature brain. So in trainings, we, some of you who have been to some of our trainings would hear this, I've heard this before, but it's helpful to think about, let's say, a two-year-old who gets into an accident. So let's say they're born neurotypical, no disabilities, they injure their brain, and it results in half their body with like abnormally tight muscle tone. We would call that hemiplegic, hema, referring to left or right side of the body, hemiplegic. um, The abnormally tight is what, spastic or spasticity. We'd call that hemiplegic spastic or spasticity. In a 30-year-old, let's say they get in a car accident and hit their head and get traumatic brain injury, and it results in half their body abnormally tight muscle tone. We'd call that hemiplegic spasticity. In an 80-year-old, let's say they have a stroke, it results in half their body abnormally tight muscle tone. We'd call that hemiplegic spasticity. So in the 80-year-old, hemiplegic spasticity, secondary to or caused by stroke or cerebral vascular accident. In the 30-year-old, hemiplegic spasticity, secondary to traumatic brain injury. In the two-year-old, we'd call it hemiplegic spastic cerebral palsy. It's really the sort of just about identical disability, it affects the body the same way. So you see that abnormally tight muscle tone on half the body, on the right arm and left, uh, right arm, right leg, or left arm, left leg. Why do we only call it cerebral palsy in the two-year-old? Actually, I'm, I'm asking you, see, I think you know the answer. I think I know the answer too. And it's the beginning of what you talked about because it's the damage to the immature brain. So during development, when we have that damage, that's when we would call it cerebral palsy. I'm going to give you a B plus on that or B. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. So development begins, you know, 
so n not to get into a, a debate on when life begins, but development begins at conception. Mm -hmm. uh, not, again, not getting into the life debate. It ends at death. So it's not necessarily during the developmental period. The developmental period is becomes now a definitional or, uh, if you will, legal issue. So the developmental period, it's probably like 18, they say. So they, there's this cutoff of 18 or 21, depends on where you live right. uh, in the world, actually. Mm -hmm. Whether if that happens to you before age 21 or 18, we would call it cerebral palsy. If it happens after... It would be called something else like what happened to you, traumatic brain injury, stroke, things like that. There's different types of cerebral palsy. There's actually seven different types. Five are the most common. Um, of those seven, there's five that are the most common. And then the, the most common representing about 65% is what's called spastic cerebral palsy, which I've been talking about. <clears throat> cerebral palsy is abnormalities of muscle tone and different quadrants of the body. So another type of cerebral palsy is... Um, ataxic cerebral palsy that actually affects the part of the brain called the cerebellum, and I'll get into that in a second. And then there's uh, dystonic or athetotic cerebral palsy, which is that fluctuating muscle tone from low tone to high tone. Sometimes people call this squirming or wriggling. And then there's the hypotonic, which is the abnormally low muscle tone. They used to call them like floppy babies. So that's a lot of words to remember. Yeah, nobody that's needs, you don't need to, to remember. remember, you don't need to remember all these. So just sort of giving people the, the, the background. So basically you're telling me to move it along. No, no, I'm just saying that like, we're not expecting people to remember all the, those no, words, but there, no. there's also so much variety within this one diagnosis. And that's the point I was trying to make. I think that's a great point. It's an actually a great segue. So if somebody has all four quadrants, right arm, left arm, right leg, left leg, and their abnormally tight muscle tone, we would call that quadriplegic spastic cerebral palsy. If it was all four quadrants and they were low muscle tone, we'd call it quadriplegic hypotonia. If it's just the right arm, it'd be monoplegic and, and so forth. So to your point, there's a lot of variabilities. The And I didn't even get into uh, ataxic cerebral palsy, which affects uh, really fine motor skills and uh, coordinated movement. So without getting it too, too deep into that, because some of the same things that can cause cerebral palsy, like toxins in utero, uh, fetal distress, uh, maternal abuse, uh, damage to the brain, cerebral anoxia, things like that, those same things can also cause intellectual disability. Here's the thing. The key takeaway from all those words and everything else is most individuals, children, adolescents, and adults with cerebral palsy do not, do not have an associated intellectual disability. That's where it, there's the most confusion. So we recommend, and, and we'll get into this in a little bit, and you've, some of you have heard this before, that you assume normal intelligence, and normal's the best word to use. It's not meant to be pejorative. There's just no better word, neurotypical, typical, average. Assume normal intelligence until you have multiple data points to tell you something different. We'll default to intellectual disability if somebody's impaired in their speaking or, you know, if we see cranial facial or postural anomalies. That's the other part of this. Some individuals with cerebral palsy are not affected at all by the way they speak. They speak just as we're speaking right now. Others have a mild impairment. Others have more uh, moderate to severe impairments, and then there's others that you may not 
be able to understand it all or they're not able to communicate it all. And I've worked with children, adolescents, and adults that fall across all of those spectrums. So the key is, is that we talk about autism. You've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So in a sense, if you met one person with cerebral palsy, you met one person and recognize that the individual child, adolescent, adult that you will be working with or interacting with in your role or capacity, they their ability to communicate falls across the spectrum. Their intellectual ability falls across the spectrum with recognizing that most do not have an associated intellectual disability. Well, and I love how you talk about the spectrum, Scott, because we talk about that with a lot of different disability types. But I think what's important here I mean, is... Humans we, fall on a spectrum. I, all of us do regarding I mean, everything, you're really. You're awesome on the awesome end, and I'm on the... Eh, meh, eh. Whatever the, the awesome spectrum is. So I, I think it's interesting because so often, just like you said at the beginning of when we first started talking about this, that people hear disability and their brain makes some sort of connection, whether it's an assumption or connection to someone that they've known with a disability. And sometimes our brains can trick us. And we talk about this in training too. So I think it's really important the way that you laid out all the different really sort of subtypes of cerebral palsy as we think about how it can affect people differently, but it's all called the same thing. So really going into every conversation with a person, regardless of their age, like you just said, assuming that normal intelligence, making sure that we're not finding ourselves making assumptions about that person, their abilities, their communication style. And it's really important in the work that we do that we give people that really good opportunity to tell their story going in with that belief that they have normal intelligence and that they'll be able to. So I think as we think about how does this apply, and I know we're going to talk more about that, but hopefully that's where people's heads are going is we don't just hear cerebral palsy and assume one thing because it can mean just so many different things. Exactly. And if they have an intellectual disability and or aren't able to communicate through what we would say vocal, verbal communication or speaking, then we make adjustments for that. And we'll talk about that in, in a bit. I think it, it would be helpful to pivot a little bit to say, okay, so what about having cerebral palsy makes that individual child, adolescent, adult, older adult uh, susceptible to victimization? Mm-hmm. Agree. If, because, if I can, you know, yeah, it's up because, to you, you let me know. Well, I think it's important for lots of reasons because we don't want to make assumptions about anything, including what does their susceptibility look like? Are they more or less or equal susceptible to, you know, to victimization as everybody else? So I think it will be important for us to understand what some of those, you know, susceptibilities are um, as we think about cases in general, not just within the forensic interview, but as we think about, you know, folks that are listening who might be our investigative and um, prosecution partners, how do we make sure that we are really looking at this case from all angles and making sure we understand where the, the vulnerabilities are? Yeah, definitely. And so if we look at and say, all right, so a a general guideline is, is the more dependent on other people for life activities, kind of the more susceptible. So we'll talk about some of those things. So not all individuals with cerebral palsy need assistance with mobility, eating, toileting, and so forth. Some do. So those that do require assistance for toileting, eating, mobility, they can be put at a, at a greater risk. So again, most people who are caring for people with cerebral palsy are not abusing them. It's a lot of power an individual has if you, if you have to rely on somebody else to help you eat, then that person controls, again, not necessarily maliciously, but they can control what you eat, when you eat, where you eat, how often you eat, the order in which you eat your food, the temperature, all those things. Mm-hmm. 
If you also need assistance with mobility, then that person has control over where you go, when you go, how you go, who you go see. And then if you need assistance with toileting and dressing and bathing and so forth, that person has a lot of control as well. So it's a lot of, there's a big power differential when that happens. Most people aren't abusing those with uh, people they're caring for. However, those power differentials put, make somebody a little bit more vulnerable. If the individual has difficulty communicating, if they use alternative communication, or if they have difficulty speaking, we know from the data that they're at definitely increased risk of abuse because we know some of our perpetrators specifically seek out these victims, not trying to depress anybody, but they do. So if somebody doesn't speak, we know that that puts them at greater risk. The other piece of this sort of ties into other risk factors that other disabilities have, like intellectual disability. If we see somebody with cerebral palsy, we talked earlier about the default is to make these assumptions about intellectual deficit. And then when we do that, that can bring a whole host of other things, like all the susceptibilities that um, befall people with intellectual disabilities, like not seeing them as adults if they're adults, mm -hmm. infantilizing them. Right. And then some of the research speaks to this, and it's sad that it does speak to this, that the presence of an intellectual deficit or the perceived presence of an intellectual deficit people see those individuals as less credible. Which again, in our world, is something that we need to be aware of, that the people are perceived sometimes as less credible, but that doesn't mean that they are less credible. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and an individual's ability to provide useful, reliable information is in part, and depending on the individual and circumstance, in large part due to the skill of the interviewer, which is a great segue into, so, Given all these ramblings that I've had and what I've been talking about, hopefully they're useful in some way to you, to the listener. What does this mean for interviewing? What do we what do we got to think about, Stace? Well, and I think you've made a lot of great points as we think through the you know the biases and assumptions and knowing what our reaction is when we learn that someone has some sort of disability. But I think the it really depends on the person. So because of this large spectrum, we need to be thinking about all the things. So for most people with cerebral palsy, we don't need to make any accommodations whatsoever because some folks, like you said, don't require any accommodation. They um, speak vocal verbally just like you and I are. And so we don't need to make any adjustments in our interviewing unless people are making assumptions about their intellect or their credibility, in which case we need to stop making those assumptions and assume normal intelligence. Yeah. You made me think of something. So I, I, and we'll probably do a podcast on behavior at some point. Uh, I know it's not connected to forensic interviewing, but it could be. So anyway, so I, do, I did a lot of work in behavior and uh, behavior analysis and assessment and treatment of problem behavior. Uh, as you know, I wrote a book on it, but the uh, it's free, so I'm not plugging the book. I mean, I could be plugging it, but I'm not plugging it. <laughs> but you should definitely read the book. It's yeah, free. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, it needs to be updated. But anyways, when I would, so I would tell my undergraduate students, graduate students, I would tell if I was training parents, no matter what, professionals, if you ask somebody... Trust me, I'm going to tie this back to a comment you made I about forensic interview. If you say, hey, what do I do when my child does this? Or what do I do when the person does this? How do I manage this behavior? And somebody right away says, oh, do this. Don't ever listen to that person. It doesn't mean you should not like, you know, it doesn't mean you should feel poorly about the person, but don't take their advice. It's because they're telling you what to do without understanding the function or the why behind the behavior. That's what we would talk about. So before you can treat a behavior you need to know more about the behavior. So if somebody just says, oh, do this. Same thing with cerebral palsy. If you ask anybody, hey, how do I interview somebody with cerebral palsy? And they go, oh, just do this. Stop listening. Right. I didn't because, say that, right? Just to be clear. Yo, no, you okay. were great. You were great. 
because I have like, if I said, if you said to me, Scott, how do I interview somebody with cerebral palsy? I would say, Stacey, I have like 20 questions. For right. You, so right? many more questions. Least, yeah. So many more questions because I need to know all of those things that you started to talk about and that you're going to talk about. So that's, that's a good guide, right? Oh, how do I, how do I interview kids with autism? How much time do you have for questions? Right. Let's talk some more about that. And right. it's, it's funny that you say that because we get that, those kinds of questions all the time in training. Uh, people reach out to us to consult on cases, which, you know, we are always happy to do. And they'll say, well, what do you do with this? And our usual answer, which makes people mad, is it depends. It yeah, depends. it's not very satisfying when you no. first hear it, but it's a real response. Mm -hmm. Because if we were just to say, oh, do this, then you know we don't know what we're talking about. And most days we do. Some, we try to. Yeah, yeah, we work together. We figure it out. Yeah, so, yeah, most days. So it depends. It depends on the person. So asking questions about that individual. And like I said, if you find yourself making assumptions about their credibility, like we know some folks do, or about someone's uh, intellect, to go back to that assuming normal intelligence sort of as your baseline as much as you can. So for most people, no accommodation. Just make sure you're not making those biases and assumptions. And then depending on how the person communicates, because some folks with cerebral palsy, like you said, Scott, uh, maybe will use a communication device or have uh, alternate ways of communicating. So we might need to make some accommodations to our interview to be ready for someone to have a communication device. Right. Yeah. I think, I think as a general rule, if the person is not impaired at all in their speaking or mildly impaired and you can understand everything they're saying, there's no need for anything. Yeah, we don't need to do anything. Yeah. Just do if, an interview. If, yeah. If you, if it's a little hard to understand and then, you know, one of the strategies we would say is don't be afraid to repeat and try to make, and paraphrase to try to make sure that you're understanding what the individual is saying and confirming that you get it correctly. That's all standard stuff. Even if somebody doesn't have a speech language disorder and you don't understand what they said, they may have whispered it. Uh, you say, I want to under, I want to make sure I understood that. And then you confirm it. And it's a great resound resounding as a technique we teach in every interview, even if you do understand the person offering those opportunities right. for correction, showing it that you're listening intently. So all of those things. So yeah, just like Scott said, stuff that we should be doing in most interviews. Right. Anyway. So we're good there. Now, if the person doesn't speak or uses a communication device or communicates in another way, that's when we start thinking about, okay, how might we handle this differently? And then I'll also throw out for you to think about what if they use a wheelchair? So what if they have some sensory needs? Like some individuals with cerebral palsy also have what's called cortical visual impairment or CVI. So those are things to consider as well. Absolutely. So thinking about those accommodations, and there's a couple of things that we might ask people to consider. And one of them would be having a multi-session interview. So if, especially if there's communication considerations and the person is either difficult to understand at first, or you think that you're going to be doing a lot of repeating, or if they're using a communication device, taking some time to reduce anxiety for them, but also for you to become more comfortable with their mode of communication will make the interview more successful as well. So considering multi-session, spending the time really to get to know that person could be something that might work for some individuals. So like Scott said, if people get to speak, right, we don't really need to do a whole lot different, but if their um, they're speaking is difficult to understand or they use a device, we might just need to take a couple of extra steps. And then um, the other thing when you're thinking about physical accessibility, so if the person uses a wheelchair or um, other ambulatory assistive device, those are times when we're going to encourage people to really look at their physical space. So the interview really begins with the first encounter. So what does that look like for you meeting the person, but also is your facility 
where they're going to be spoken to in a position to accommodate those different ambulatory assistive devices throughout the entire space. So from the moment they walk in the door to the waiting room, the interview room, exam room, whatever areas that they're going to be in, because I know that I have been in centers all over the country and they're all laid out differently. And so what does that look like? And are you needing to move furniture as people walk in? Because that's going to send a message, oh, this place isn't for me or isn't set up for someone who uses a wheelchair. And that's going to not make people feel, you know, warm and welcome and, you know, okay to be there when they're probably already there feeling a little nervous or uncomfortable, maybe even scared. So finding ways to make sure that the physical space is welcoming and that also within our conversation that we make those accommodations for them to be comfortable as well. So some of those things that we can do ahead of time, if we know, because sometimes we know about stuff and sometimes we don't, but That's if right. we know making those accommodations before the person even gets there and once they're there, if we need to make any of those other adjustments, we can do that too. So all the things to think about. Yeah. And I didn't mean to derail you on the communication device or if they're not speaking in terms of, you know, accommodations, but if the again, just to reiterate, if the individual doesn't really have communication needs or physical uh, accessibility or sensory accessibility needs, and it's just a you do the interview like you do the interview. So I think we've covered most except for all right. So what are some things to think about in the short amount of time we have to think about if somebody uses a communication device, and what if the individual doesn't doesn't speak? We'll start with communication device. So communication device, again, it depends because there are so many different types of communication devices. So I mean, there's not one, just one? There's not just one. Can I, you thought there was only, I thought oh. there was only one. I think that would be convenient, but also wouldn't meet people's needs, oh, right? Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. There's more than one. That's there's right so me. many. Thousands, actually. So there's lots of different ways people communicate. And it can be anything from, uh, I've seen a, you know, a card that says yes on one side and no on the other, and it's laminated. And that's how someone communicates all the way up to some sort of device that they use. Uh, it's usually an iPad or something similar with an application. Again, there's thousands of applications and they can be customized. So depending on the person, there could be different buttons, different sections within those buttons. So learning about the device. One of the things that I like to do as an interviewer, if I know that someone's going to be using a device, is I will spend an entire first session just getting to know them, asking questions and learning sort of about what buttons are available, if you will, and how they communicate. Because the other thing that I've noticed when I've interviewed people who use communication devices is it's just one of several ways typically that they communicate. So you can't just rely necessarily on the device or on other ways that someone communicates. So spending that time to really get um, yourself uh, used to and accustomed to how they communicate and they get accustomed to how you ask questions. So it's like a narrative practice, which is important. And we just do it a little differently. Yeah. And sometimes people will have a communication device and they don't want to use it. That's not just too. not just for the interview. They just don't want to use it, period. I, I've encountered that a few times, and I know Dermot, one of our staff, has encountered that as well. So um, I'll start on this. So what about if they don't speak? So then if somebody doesn't speak, then we have a whole bunch of things that we can do. We actually have a whole uh, training for this, our adapted protocol. But basically establishing in what ways do they communicate. So if somebody doesn't speak, we try to avoid using the term nonverbal. And even if somebody else labels them that, and we, we ask questions like, well, do they understand you? How do they get their needs met? 
uh, ask again, do they use any devices to communicate? Mm-hmm. And those are the re- some of the real key things. I'm going to kick it off and kick it back to you. You're like, well, this was my part, Scott. No, Why it's did you fine. I, no, that's a great segue, great introduction. The other follow-up that I like, Scott, to the question of do they understand you? Maddie's going to yell at me is, if, we keep, if we keep you know going back and forth. Like, this, right. this editing is going to be crazy. It's for a her. great conversation. She's always yelling. Our producer. She gets, she gets on it sometimes. All right. Anyway. She's not always yelling. She's wonderful. She is. But go ahead. Credit to Maddie. So, um, see, now you got me distracted from what we were even talking about, Scott. Uh, uh, no, I'm just kidding. People who don't speak. People who don't speak. Oh, the question I like to follow up with. Thank you. Maddie got us back on task. The thing I like to follow up with is how can you tell that they understand you? So not not just asking, do they understand, but how do you know? So what am I going to be looking for to make sure that they're tracking what I'm talking about and that we're really, you know, communicating well? And then how do they communicate? What are their best skill sets? That strengths-based perspective that we feel is so important. Well, I'll add to that. I like what you said. I'm going to throw something else for people to consider. So if if you said to me, do they understand you? And I said, yes. You would say, how do you know? Yeah, right? how can you tell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I w- would say, do they, if I'm asking a caregiver, do they communicate, do they understand you? If they said yes, I would say, what does that look like? What does that look like? Great. Yeah. What does that look like? How can you tell? Yeah. Something like that to make sure. Yeah, I think what does it look like is better than how can you tell? No, yeah, I'm just kidding. Either, either's fine. I'm totally kidding. Well, because it's, it's more observable. Yeah. So how can you tell? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tell me more about that. All those things are fine. I was just messing with you. Of course, there's the, so and the reason why I did that specifically is there's we're not trying to teach you a script. This is something that you have to get comfortable with and 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 ask questions. And it will vary based on the individual you're asking questions. They may be giving you a ton of information. They may not be giving a ton of information. So it is nuanced and there's no perfect way to do it. So that's why I was doing that with you. Well, and sometimes we can get this information from folks and sometimes we can't, not because they're not available, because maybe they don't have the information. I've had cases before where I've gone to interview um, specifically children and the person who is available to me is a foster parent who met them yesterday. So we don't always have access to the information. Yeah, or they... We concerned that they might be the perp. <laughs> exactly. Another another consideration. Or there's some sort of emergency and you know, law enforcement and child protective are needing to make safety decisions yep. right away. Yep. So point. there there's Good lots point. of reasons why we might not have the information. But in most cases we know that we do usually have an opportunity to schedule these appointments to find out who the people are in their life that we might be able to get some information from who could really help us uh, in making some of those decisions about what accommodations need to be made, whether it be physical communication or something else. That's great. I love it. You know, it was making me think. So we've done a, a podcast on autism. We've done this one. We'll probably do intellectual disability next. I think that that sounds like a great plan. And there's lots of different questions to consider when interviewing someone with autism, cerebral palsy, intellectual disability, or no disability at all. So we can talk about all those. Or they have all of them. Or they have all of them. I've worked with individuals with autism and cerebral palsy mm-hmm. and autism, cerebral palsy, and intellectual disability. But well, hopefully this was useful for folks. I, I think it was great. It was helpful to learn more about what cerebral palsy is and uh, listen to our other podcasts if you want to learn more about someone who has more than one diagnosis. Thanks for listening. For more information about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.